So I guess if you have got diagramming types, you need to actually uh, let Pete have them today. Um, Vicky, you're on next. Is Vicky around? Vicky. Okay, well, um, true to today's theme, I'd like to open my talk with a diagram. Uh, as some of you may know, my role as a graphics person doesn't usually involve much public speaking. So after the initial shock of being asked to present today subsided, um, I had to think about what I was actually going to talk about. And funnily enough, I drew my thoughts out in this diagram. This helped me to get to grips with what it was I wanted to say. And from this, I went on to organise my thinking into a series of points that form the basis of my presentation. So I'm going to begin by giving you a quick outline of what I'm going to cover today. I'm Vicky, and I'm a graphics media developer in learning and teaching solutions here at the OU. I look after the illustrative assets that go into our printed and online materials. This can mean diagrams, maps, figures, technical illustration, cartoons and photographs. I also help to create a range of interactive solutions. In a moment, I'll expand a bit more on my role in producing learning materials. I'm going to show a couple of examples of how I use diagrams to help in my day-to-day -day work as a graphics media developer and how these diagrams can aid the thinking process. I'm also going to talk through a few case studies which explore how diagrams are useful tools to enable thinking and explore concepts, how diagrams can be used to help during the process of producing learning materials, and how diagrams have different uses during the various stages of the design process. So, returning to my role in producing learning materials, Within LTS, I work as part of a team of people that help bring modules to life. Within this team, I help with interpreting the ideas of the clients and bringing these ideas to life visually. I generate suggestions and ideas about how content may be represented. And I use forms of visual representation to demystify difficult to understand processes and theories. I also aim to help make the complex clear refining the information into its most useful form. I create suitable graphic styles for the diagrams, taking into account the audience, learning level and subject matter. Finally, probably the most important aspects of my role include helping to produce effective learning materials that are visually successful, and most important of all, creating materials that students find engaging and that fire the imagination. So, introducing diagrams that are useful only to me, that to help with the thinking process. Often at the beginning of a new project, where one can be overwhelmed with the amount of information available and the complexities of the job, it can be incredibly useful to draw out what you do know. Using diagrams to focus on interpreting the available data and exploring the concept. I've got a couple of examples. This diagram was created just for my own benefit. Here, I was analysing the content of a module, working out what went where, how items linked together, timescales and the direction of study. Doing this very rough visual really helped me to get to grips with the information I was analysing from a variety of sources. Understanding the complexity of the information is key to producing simple-looking final diagrams, and the initial thinking sketches really help with dissecting the content. 
And this is the final diagram that came out of those initial scribbles. Here you can still see that the circular direction of the information flow and the colour has been used to help highlight assessment weeks. Sometimes the initial diagrams can bear very little resemblance to the final product, but this doesn't matter. Their purpose is a functional one, to help work out the next steps on a project and aid with processing lots of information. This is another thinking diagram that was for my own reference. Here I was trying to work out the structure of an interactive item, how the sequence would work as a whole. I find it easiest to work with a pen and paper when sketching like this, not like those guys over there. That way I don't get caught up in worrying too much about how things look. It's all about the thinking. Transferring the content into a diagram is a useful way to test this thinking and work out the next steps on a project. So on to my first case study. This is an interactive item created for T189, digital photography. And the brief here was to develop an interactive digital camera that students could use online to experiment with different photographic settings. Using the digital camera gave space to teach the theory without getting caught up in the differences between real cameras. And this team effort involved myself, the author, the designer, editor and interactive media developer. So the start point was an ideas brainstorm with the rest of the team. What did we need to put on this camera? How did things work on a real camera and what was the theory behind them? What were the important settings? How would the camera look, sound and function? And how would users interact with it? Quick sketches and notes were made on post-its to help capture our thinking and explore how the features might work. We then drew out a basic diagram of how all the features might start to combine. This process was key in deciding what aspects would be included and how it would all look. So from that initial rough sketch, I worked up some visuals and passed these back to the author for consideration. Amends to enhance the item were incorporated and you can see the notes here which describe the changes that were needed to be made. And here we see the final designs. The drawings show all the available settings that would appear on the camera and how they would be controlled by the student. When the designs were finalised, the artwork was passed back to the interactive media developer so they could put the item together and implement all of the functionality. Working as a team really helped to create a strong final product. this little quick demo. So here, students are asked to explore the effect on that, of aperture value on exposure. They adjust the setting and see the results on the photograph and a representation of what happens to the lens. Then they read the theory behind their experimentation under the reveal answer button. We added value to the teaching because of the interactive camera's ability to demonstrate visual photographic effects and simultaneously show the physical effects on the camera. So for my next case study, I'm going to look at a project that I began under the context of LEAP, the Learning Experience Advancement Programme, for those of you who might remember that. LEAP was a project which looked at the package of material that the student received, what came out of the box. We considered, we considered what students got, the order it came out of the box, and what first impression this gave of studying with the OU. Based on our findings, we investigated ways to improve the student experience, or learning journey, and one of those aspects we looked at was the design of the old course calendar. The redesign of this item involved looking at the structure and content of a course and working out how to incorporate the student journey concept. 
So this is what the old study calendar looked like. I analysed the content of this calendar and a study guide for a sample course and tried to come up with a more useful way of expressing that information. What did the student need to know? What was important? Well, how was this new course calendar or map going to help the student in their learning and what was going to make it useful? Sketching out some quick rough ideas helped me to get to grips with the amount of data and work out some sort of structure. The thinking diagrams marshalled my thoughts and helped me identify the important features of the calendar. They helped me think through patterns and formations quickly so that I could identify a couple of stronger concepts that were worth working up into some more finished designs. So this is the final calendar redesign. And this contains all the data you saw in the original course calendar, but visually it's much easier to see and access all that information. Although I created a fairly traditional-looking calendar idea, I was also keen to push the boundaries and create a more radical diagrammatic solution to the calendar issue. I was questioning if students needed a calendar or if they needed a map, a guide to their module more. So this is the alternative idea of guiding the student through their module using a more diagrammatic style. There's a clear start and finish to the journey and assessments are clearly marked along the route in between the blocks of study. The height of each block gives an indication of the amount of study students are expected to undertake and icons show what equipment they will need and when. Although this idea was never adopted in production, it opened up the concept of having some sort of module map and a few years down the line, I returned to this project to see if I could create an interactive item that would act as a guide to the module. And this is a recent interactive module map developed for TU100, My Digital Life. This aims to do what the previous diagram did, but this time the student has control, can explore the module at their own pace. Some of the feedback I had about the previous diagram was that it was too overwhelming this interactive solution aims to make the information more palatable. It's revealed gradually and broken down into manageable sections. I'll just play this quick demo. So the first tab explains what each item used during the module is, if delivery is through the post or via the website, and how it will be used during the module. Items spanning both columns, like the module guide, indicate material available online and in print. The second tab explores the main structure of the module and its content. By clicking on a block, the student sees the breakdown of the parts within that block. They then roll over a part to see the resources used within that section and a description of what they will be studying. This interactive exercise helps students familiarise themselves with all of the components and then explore how the module works as a whole. It's also useful for tutors and anyone who wants to gain an overview. It aims to add value and help the student feel comfortable and reassured about undertaking a learning journey with the OU. So my next case study, and this is a brief to develop a set of diagrams to help explain the complexities of encryption, interpreting text and rough sketches provided by the author. And this was also for T100, My Digital Life. Here, the author had developed the text and a rough sketch of the concept. Although a good start point, the diagram did not yet explain the concept clearly enough. And the editor, author and myself met to discuss the issue and came up with some ideas 
on how to break down the text into a series of diagrams that would help explain the complicated process of using private and public keys to encrypt information. So here we see two of the figures that are based on that previous text and sketch. You can see that I broke down the process being described into stages to help explain what was going on. Both figures use a consistent visual style for the elements of the illustration, the people and the keys. And two key shapes were used to help represent private and public keys. Colour was used to help identify which key belonged to who and how it was moved along the chain. And now, when studied alongside the text, the concept is clearly explained. A lot of the time in my role, the diagram is the final outcome, and I aim to refine the information to represent the clearest meaning in order to provide a successful learning component. So my final case study, and the brief for this one was to develop an animation to help explain different diagramming techniques. And this was for T863, Environmental Decision Making. Here, the author had a script and some sketches of how the different diagrams should look. This is the script you see here. After a briefing, I worked through the script and the initial sketches in order to produce a storyboard and visuals for the accompanying graphics. So here we see part of that storyboard that outlined the basic content of each screen of the animation and noted any action that took place. And the act of producing the storyboard helped iron out all the action and highlight any possible gaps or problems within the sequence. The storyboard and accompanying visuals were circulated to the team for consideration. And the storyboard is a bit like a public thinking diagram. It gave all those involved in the project a clear understanding of what was being produced and the chance to comment on anything that was missing or needed changing before production began. The script was then finalised and recorded as audio to accompany the visual action. The audio, graphics and storyboard were combined to create the animation in Flash. An animation is a powerful tool when used to convey a lot of information about a subject. As this information is broken down into stages and presented with a voiceover which explains what's going on, it can be easier to take in and more engaging for the student. And I really enjoy taking a concept like this and turning it into an interactive item as it seems to bring the subject to life. I'll just play you the first few stages of this. Unfortunately, we've got no sound, so you can't hear the lovely voiceover that's playing here. But in the background, uh, it's being described what's going to happen within this animation and how students are going to be taken through each stage of it. We've used little graphics, not unlike rich pictures, to kind of demonstrate the thinking processes behind it as well here. And ironically, students are asked to draw rich pictures within this, so it's a good explanation. So, to summarise, you could say that my role uses diagrams in two distinctly separate ways. The first is when the diagrams are helpful during a project, whilst I'm designing an outcome. They're part of the process. These diagrams the client never sees. They are the underpinning of the design, the structure under the final finish. The second is when the diagram is the final outcome, used to express ideas and content.
During the lifespan of a project, diagrams can help with ideas generation and brainstorming. They help to identify what the important information is and what to do with it, helping focus on what it is that you're trying to explain. They help to order thoughts and streamline the thinking process. And they are helpful in plotting out connections and making sure different parts of the project line up. And sometimes, often in the case of storyboards, they bring a concept to life. Storyboards help all team members understand what is being created, how it will be structured, and provide a visual that can be commented on and refined. When the diagram is the final outcome, this needs to engage the student and encourage them to explore ideas and concepts. The diagram needs to be approachable and the information it contains accessible. The concept and associated information needs to be conveyed clearly in a way that is easy to understand and interact with. And the visual style needs to be suitable for the audience as this can have an effect on how the information is interrogated. And most of all, the content should be expressed as a meaningful representation, something that's suitable for the purpose and intended audience, something to fire the imagination and engage the student. So thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. If you have any questions. How are you, student? Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't get adopted in production. Because I really like the mapping with the, the size of the blocks. Yes. That was very yeah. useful. Yeah. Yeah, mm. it, it went to kind of um, testing, but it never got further than that, unfortunately. But we're still trying. Yes, I'd like to see it. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. There's actually quite a movement there. A lot of heads were nodding when you said mm. that, and I thought that too. So what was, why, why didn't it get through testing? It, it kind Could of... Could you be indiscreet? Yeah. The, the diagram with the blocks, the diagrammatic solution, it was generally thought to, by students in the focus testing group to be too complicated and too overwhelming, which is why we kind of went for that interactive visual solution. Um, maybe it might be worth submitting it to testing again, because this was a few years ago now, and just seeing what the outcome is again. But yeah, I, I was disappointed it didn't get adopted as well. Sorry, yeah. just... Could you just say what you liked about it particularly? I mean, what, what particularly drew you to it? For me, it's, it's the visual, so I can see, you know, like you said, each block, you know, how much study material. Yeah. For example, the, uh, the flat calendar, that's something I always pretty much throw away once, when I used to, because I don't think they use that anymore. So for me, a visual aid, something I can sort of see, is useful for me. Yeah. That's how I work. Yeah, and that's really good to know, because that's what I was hoping students would want yeah. to do with it, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to agree with that. I think the diagram was a bit overwhelming, mm. but the idea of the size of the blocks is very good, I think. And I should think you should take that forward. Maybe it was, as I say, a bit overwhelming, yeah. but you should take that principle of the different sizes forward in some form or another. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Um, it was, it's a question about your use of the diagrams. Mm. When you're drawing these kind of um, your sort of early ideas and that, do you find that's helpful to do it on your own, or 
and or do you find it helpful to do that with, say, for example, a course team or, or a group of people around you? How, how, I mean, do you work best? Is it better for you as a designer, as a thinker, to be working individually first and then present a diagram? Or do you do it in a more collective way? I've got to say, it really depends on the project. If you look at that um, module map job, I was a lot better working on my own for that because there was so much information to analyse. But things like the digital camera, that really was a group effort. And I think it was quite strong because of everybody's input into that initial diagram discussion, if you like. But yeah, there are times when it's better just to go off on your own and just draw stuff, I think, is the answer to that, yeah. So it's a bit of both. It can be both. Rose, did you have a question? Uh, yes, I just wanted, I mean, I can add my tick to the, um, the block size thing. But I was also um, really struck by the way you drew such a strong distinction between diagrams for working out stuff and how I'm thinking about this and, and drew a strong distinction between diagrams for presentation to somebody else in order to support their learning. Mm -hmm. And um, I also like very much the um, handwriting script you use for the kind of thinking and working it out thing. Yeah. Um, I'd be quite interested to know what font that is. But, uh, so this is a kind of an appreciative comment as much as a question. Thank you. Thanks very much. Sorry, you have to wait for the boom to come round. <laughs> <laughs> what was the font? I'll tell you later, because I oh, can't right. remember off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're all waiting the then. <laughs> really I'm neither uh, a staff member or a student of the Open University and I'd quite like to be able to see some of this stuff and particularly yours um, online somewhere so that I could mm. look at them in a bit more leisure um, and it struck me that what you've just presented would in fact itself become a course in how to do exactly what you're doing that's really interesting yeah thank you yeah I think they will be available one day so. mm. so, yeah, yeah they will be so all the presentations will be available through the journal publication. I mean, this will be a published article, but I think your question goes further than that, actually. Yeah, this is just another word of appreciation, really, because as I was watching your presentation, I thought you've really walked the talk here. You, you, you used graphics all the way through, and I thought that was, I found that very um, informative as to how I usually do things. When asked to do this, I must admit that my first thought was, how can I do this in diagrams? And that's kind of what's powered that uh, presentation, really. So thank you. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks so much. Peter. Right, good afternoon, uh, everyone. Um, actually, it was an interesting question that the gentleman raised back there about the OU providing courses to teach the kind of thinking that, that Vicky was talking about. Maybe this sort of addresses that in, in some way. I'm going to talk about a course that um, was launched in 2010 um, called U101, first level course uh, in design thinking. Um, design thinking, creativity for the 21st century. My name is Peter Lloyd. I was the, the, um, the course the course team chair, the now the module team chair, um, for production in the first year of presentation. And the course was quite innovative in a number of respects. It was an 
all online course, and it had a number of different technologies that sort of integrated together. There was an online design studio. Um, the, the course material was only available online. And we had an environment that I'm going to talk about today, which is called Compendium Design Studio, Compendium DS. So this is just one facet of uh, a quite, a, quite a large course, and um, in some ways quite a complex course, but we tried very hard to make it easy to use for um, students that, that were new to the university. Um, and it's been um, quite a successful course. So I'm talking about a piece of software that's being used throughout the course. We get about 1,000 students a year studying this, so it's quite, um, it has to be quite a robust environment. Um, and if I get uh, some time at the end, I'll do a, do a quick demo and show you some, some student work. Um, I'd like to start with a, with a quote. This is quite a, a nice quote about the design process, but I think really applies to any kind of creative process. Um, and it's by, uh, from a guy called uh, Dick Powell, who's the head of uh, a, one of the top UK design agencies called Seymour Powell. And um, he says, he's using a metaphor to describe what the, what the creative process feels like. Uh, if you look at the whole process of design and how designers think, think, as it, as it, think, as it, think of it as if you've seen an explosion on film run backwards very slowly. What you see is a whole load of dust and rubbish and bits and pieces all floating about in the air. And as you wind the film back, these, these come together very quickly. It seems like you've got a, a big mess big lots of stuff and then it all seems to come together in this big whoop at the end um, and the design's finished. I think that's a really good characterization of, of the creative process um, that you, you know you're in, you're in the middle of all this stuff this dust and rubbish and bits and pieces and you don't quite know what's going to fit together and where things are going to lead and then as you get towards a deadline or you get towards finishing a design it comes things come together very quickly and to many people, that's a fairly mysterious process, I think. Um, but design education is focused on teaching the process of design on, and teaching people how to design. So I think many people have this sort of urge, to, urge a creative urge, but they don't quite know how to sort of um, channel that in terms of a process. And that's very much what we tried to do in, this, in this, um, the course that we put together. And I think, I think Vicky's talk provided that illustration of what the, the creative process was, those, those, all those big diagrams and connections and things, and living with that kind of uncertainty, and then things come together and you get, a, you get a nice result at the end of it. But behind that, there's a lot of activity and a lot of stuff and dead ends and, and, and things. So in the production of uh, U101, we were faced with a problem. What we wanted to teach was a process, not necessarily an outcome. And if you're in a traditional school of art and design, um, that's a fairly straightforward thing to do. You get, you, you get to see your, your students. They get, they get to show you their models and their prototypes and their sketches and their discussions. And their, you sit down and you have a kind of mentoring um, discussion. It's very sort of easy to get a, a feel of someone's process, where they are in a creative process. And then... Um, it's very easy to get seduced by the outcome of that process. So you get good students that produce a, something nice at the end, a very good, nice design. And it's very easy to think that, that the process that resulted in that thing uh, must be a good process because it resulted in a good outcome. 
And that's not necessarily the case. And I think a, a, lot, of, a lot of art and design schools concentrate on teaching a process and, and trying to ignore what comes out of that process. And we were trying to do the same, same thing. But obviously that's quite different, difficult via dis distance to access a process rather than look at the outcomes of those processes, um, which is much easier. Just take a photo or you can just uh, and assess the product or you can even, uh, on our second, third level courses, what students do is, is make models and they send them into us and we assemble them and we mark them that way so we get a physical uh, model. But this was being an online course provided um, a, a, a lot of um, a lot of challenges. Um, and design problems are very, like any creative problems, they're quite open problems. They don't necessarily have correct answers. Um, Horst Rittel, famous uh, sort of urban planning thinker, described them as wicked problems. It's, it's the nature of the problem seems to change as you, as you develop a solution. They don't have kind of, they have a starting point, but then the problems seem to change and it's, it's as much about working out what the problem of the problem is rather than actually just trying to get a solution that, that solves the first problem. So the problems develop as well as, as well as the solutions, and there's this kind of link between solutions and problems. And they're also very visual um, problems, design problems tend to be. So there's a lot of kind of visual information that needs to be processed and put together and understood, and that's again, that's quite difficult to do in a in distance learning. Is to kind of assess that visual material and how it's fitting into a into a process. I think one key aspect of creative processes is that they're also learning processes. Is that you learn something during the process of design. Um, so what you know at the end is is more than you know at the beginning, and it's also a kind of learning about learning process. So there's kind of multiple levels in design processes. And again, we wanted to try and capture that in representing design processes, but also in our assessment of those processes. How do we capture those different levels? There's the, the, the basic processing of information itself and how you, how you put, connect information up. But then what do you learn from all that? What do you learn by doing that? And then what do you learn by knowing how you learn sort of thing? So there's a kind of self-awareness aspect of of um, design processes, as well as as well as actually following a, a good process. So I think that, that that was the problem that we were faced with. How can we actually assess a, pro a, a process? How do you assess a process um, effectively with an OU system? You've got tutors, you've got uh, students have to send in their assignments, and and essentially you want to assess a process. But how do you access that? How do you access a thinking process? in order to, to grade it, um, to comment on it, to discuss it, um, and to see the different levels of, of, of thinking. And we wanted to do it in a way that wasn't just putting a Word document together. It wasn't just putting a PowerPoint presentation together. It was something that was kind of a bit more meaningful and a bit more thought through in terms of what, what design thinking is about. Um, and what we, what we came across um, was something called Compendium. Some of, some of you might have used Compendium. It's a, it's a piece of software that was put together by our Knowledge Media Institute. Um, this is a screenshot of the, the um, Compendium. We, we call it Adult Compendium. Um, 
And it's been used by quite a few people. I think NASA have used it to put together there, to, to, to tie things together. And it's basically a, what they term it as a knowledge mapping um, environment. Um, and what you, can, what you can see here, we, we, we looked at this and we thought, ah, oh, this is interesting. This is, you know, we can connect things up here. Um, but this is a very complex, this is a very complex um, screen that you're, that you're offering to students. I can count about 56 different buttons there um, and working out what they all do and how they function um, and how you actually use, use Compendium. It's, it's, it's got a lot of different functions. It's very complicated. Um, it uses words like transclusion that no one can really understand. Um, but we had this feeling that this is quite, this is quite powerful. It's quite an efficient one. It's, it's like a lot of OU software you look at the screen, you think, God, this looks complicated. Like the ETMA system, I don't know if anyone. You look, this looks complicated, and you're put off by that. But then when you start using it, it's actually quite nice to use, and there's a, there's a good idea behind it. And we wanted to use that idea. And what we, playing around with Compendium, this version of Compendium, we, we thought, yeah, this kind of works for design. You know, we can, what we can do is we can drag images into, onto, onto the workspace here we can use different node types. And it seems to somehow, you seem to somehow put together a kind of thinking process there, you know, that, that reflects a design, the kind of randomness of a design process, but also the way that you kind of link things together and you can write comments on things. Um, and so, so we, we wanted to capture, very much capture the essence of that, of that piece of software, but in a much simpler way. It was, it was way too complex, this, this software. I mean, we're dealing with first-level students that may not have had any computing experience before. Um, and that's, again, that's quite a challenge to, to provide an environment that, that doesn't fall over and it's, it's simple enough to, um, to use without really having to think about what you're doing. So it doesn't get in the way of the creative process. It somehow enables the creative process to happen. Um, so this is the... This is a screenshot of what we, we actually came up with, the environment that we came up with. So if you, if you compare it to the, to the previous one with 56 separate buttons, we got it down to 12. Uh, and we had a much cleaner sort of interface, something almost that looks you know, kind of childlike in a way, um, but something that looks quite simple, simple to use. It's fairly obvious that you know, you've got... Um, You've got a number of uh, a number of features. You've got the um, the white space in the middle, which is basically the canvas that you can um, drag different types of nodes nodes onto. So the nodes in the top left, the coloured nodes, form the basic grammar of the design process. So we've, we we thought very carefully about what what aspects of design do we want to have for certain node types. So we've got questions, we've got ideas, we've got submaps. We've got positive things. We've got negative things. It's all about kind of making judgments about stuff, evaluating alternatives. Um, then we've got links to link you to the World Wide Web. And we've got um, a kind of diary node at the bottom, which is very important for kind of recording your thoughts about what you've done and how you've done it. Um, so it's kind of a kind of what we call a sort of iconography of design. So these are the basic elements that you can fit together to form different design processes. Um, just under the under the nodes, there's a, a, um, a sort of screen icon, which is a presentation 
Um, I'll, I'll demo that uh, a bit later on. But you turn that on, and that, sh that shows you the images that the students drag in, at a, in, a, in a sort of larger way. So it's very easy to sort of look through someone's map and just see the images in a much um, fuller size. And we also had um, something at the bottom with a kind of scribble pad too. So you can actually turn on a scribble pad, and you can sort of scribble over the top of what a student's done. And the idea behind that it was that we wanted you know, a tutor to be able to um, communicate with the student maybe online through online conferencing, something like Illuminate, and actually talk about the map and demonstrate what they were saying online. And we, we, we've, we do that quite regularly now, where students talk through their maps with their tutors online and, and sort of get um, comments about what they're doing. So there's a kind of discussion element that we added into the interface. Um, so there's a kind of representation element, there's a discussion element, and these, uh, the maps that students produce can be exported and put into the TMA system and then assessed by, assessed by tutors, which was quite a technical um, achievement in itself. Um, but we didn't really want to let students loose with a sort of blank canvas. I mean, it's very much about teaching them what the process of design is. Um, so what we, what we thought was, how do, how, how do we actually do that? How do we start off with a simple design process and actually tell them that, and make it more complicated? Um, so we came up with a series of templates, which is what you see there, four, four assignment templates and a, and a end of course assignment template. Um, and these give them different, give, give them the sort of templates for different design processes. So they're not creating things from nothing um, but they're learning about uh, design processes and how they get more complicated and how they can have different elements in. So as they go through the course, the design assignments get, the design processes get more, more complex, but there's always a structure there that they can um, deal with. So I'll just show you an example of the template for the first, first design assignment they do, which is to design a, a T-shirt. Um, and it's fairly fairly, a, a, well, I'd say it was a classic design process. So you have a, an exploration phase, the three-week three week assignments. You have an exploration phase where you're, you're looking around you, you're generating information, um, you're getting a few basic ideas, um, and you create different, dif different forms of information, take you, take you in different ways. So three different explorations, that's what we asked them to do. Second week, you generate concepts for, for, your, for your design. So you use your creativity to, to develop different concepts. Um, again, three different alternatives. So it's all about generating alternatives, selecting the best alternative and moving forward. And then finally, putting together um, a, a design proposal or a design solution. Um, so actually making, making your design. Um, and so we've given th these, these nodes, so there are nine, tw uh, 13 nodes there for them to, f to fill in during the three weeks. So what you, what you actually get is a sort of tip of the iceberg. You get, you get students showing you pictures of stuff that they've done. So there's a sort of complex process that they're, they're carrying out within their own environments, in the work environments, in the home environments. And that may consist of lots of photos, lots of sketches, but they just show you a little bit. They sort of sample that, the key points of that process. Um, and, and, and show that to you. So I'll just show you a, a, an example of um, a, so, uh, um, a stu what a student's done. The actual assignment is to is basically use your hand as, a, as an inspiration for a, a design for your, for your T-shirt. 
Um, and there are a number of different ways you can, you can explore, your, explore your hand, the gestures that it makes, the features that it has. Um, I can't remember what the other one is, but, but what your hand does, thinking about, what you, what, thinking about your hands. And that's the kind of inspiration that then leads you to um, a number of different concepts that you see in this, the second stage there. Um, and then making a, putting, putting your favorite concept onto a T-shirt. So that's the basic creative process that we take them through. So it's quite a simple design process. There's not really much variation in um, what they can add to the process. It's just um, stepping through the process to, to, to produce something. Once they've done that, they export that, um, upload it to the ETMA system. That gets sent to a, eventually it comes out at a, at a, for, at a tutor, and a tutor opens their map and, and um, can comment on it. So this is a, an example of um, a tutor that's marked a compendium map. And what you see, we've added an ex, extra node under the nodes at the top. There's a blue node at the bottom. We thought very carefully about, you know, how do, how do tutors comment on students' processes? So we gave the, uh, a special tutor node, which is a tutor comment about a particular aspect of the student's design process that they, they particularly wanted to comment on. So you can sort of see a, a few blue nodes and, and, and red arrows pointing to things that are, co are comments that access particular points in the process. So they're very much looking through a process and commenting on that process. Um, the other thing that you can see is that, that um, you can drag other documents into, onto the um, compendium um, environment. So there's a Word document there where the tutor's written um, feedback for the student to, to take note of. You can, you can pull in PDF documents, um, PowerPoint um, things. It's a very a good way of pulling in information. You can link to, um, to the internet uh, and other websites. So it links in with the, the online design studio too. So at certain points we ask them to upload images to an online design studio and you can link directly from your assignment to those uh, to, the, to the online design studio. Um, so, what the students then get back is this sort of commented compendium map. map. So they've had a kind of comments on their on their thinking process. And as as they go through the course, as they go through their design assignments, they get a bit more complex. The design processes processes. So this is the the second design assignment. You can see it's beginning to get a bit more a bit more fluid. Um, there's a few more options that we give the students. So we give them submaps to fill in, which are blank bits where they can put their, create their own sort of pr processes. Um, but the top level structure is, is again a template that they have to fill in. Um, there's a bit of group activity that they have to do. There's a few uh, web links that they, they have to um, uh, create. So as they go through the course, the information, the, the way that they structure their and represent their design process gets a bit more complex. And that's what we're actually trying to teach them. We're trying to teach them the process of design and how it differs in different, for different problems um, and how you represent what you're doing. Um, I'll just show you Compendium in Action, I think. Um, it's a, um, a Java-based application. It's only about 25 megabytes in size, so it's quite small. It's cross-platform too, so it, it, uh, I think it operates on Mac, PC, and uh, Linux operating systems. Um, it's proved, and it's proved pretty robust. Um, and I think this is, this, is, this is kind of a, what you get as a tutor. You get lots of different maps from different students 
um, and, and you can sort of access what the, what the students have, have done. So I'll, I'll just pick up the TMA that I, I showed you, this one. Um, so you can see that. If I switch on the, the sort of viewing, you can see images at a, at a bigger scale. So you can present your work a bit better. Um, but another thing is that, that, that that's quite a, te a different, difficult technical problem to solve in that students take images that are megabytes um, of information. Um, and if you've got 10, 10 images in there that are huge, you don't want to, and then submitting that, that, that will all take a long time, it's a big board. So we had to have a way of optimizing the images so we could sort of show them at a bigger scale. So there are all these sort of problems that you have to solve in producing something that's basically easy to use. Um, so as you go through, you can, you can also, you know, you can follow a process through, essentially. Um, in each node are kind of descriptions too, so you can describe what, what, you're, what you're actually showing. So you, uh, you can comment on not just the, the, the image that you're showing, but also what, why, why you're showing the image and, and what, you've, what you've done. So the idea here is that you're actually just showing bits of your activity, significant bits of the process that you've been through, um, and describing what you've done, putting together a kind of narrative. Uh, these, are the, these are the diary nodes that I mentioned. These are the kind of reflections on, uh, this is how we build in that hierarchy of information. So at the end of each week, there's always a, a, a diary reflection on the week. What have you achieved during the week? And what, what have been the problems that you've come up against? And how have you solved those? And um, what would you do if you were going to do it again? How would you organize yourself? So it's, it's very much a process of kind of looking back, thinking, how could I have done that differently? Um, and then taking that on forward into the, into the next into the next week. And at the end, there's always an evaluation that looks back over all three weeks of the process as a whole. What have you actually learned during the process? So we've got, within these templates, we've got that kind of hierarchy of information and a sort of reflection on what you're doing, but also what you're learning. Um, and this is the, uh, if I toggle this on, uh, this was the, the sort of scribble board that you can scribble around. So the idea was that if, if, if I was talking to the student now online, I could sort of highlight what I, 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 I thought of something, make connections. Uh, I, can, I can rub stuff out. I can change the color of the pencil. So it's, it's, just a, it's just a kind of visual aid to sort of discuss what the students are, um, are producing. So essentially what we get is, is, is lots and lots of these, these compendium maps from students. We get you know, 500, of the, 500 of these students doing these every year. They're doing four assignments. So we generate huge amounts of, of um, compendium maps and images. And um, uh, uh, most, uh, most students, I don't know, pretty much all students find it very easy to use. We get very few complaints. It hasn't fallen over at all. We've had a few um, problems with different strange operating systems. Um, but very, very few, very few problems. And very few students who say, you know, I can't use this at all. It just seems a very e easy to use, intuitive to use, and, and you know, achieves the, the learning outcomes that we want to for the course. Uh, right. So really... Just to summarize then, I've given you sort of a whistle-stop tour of, of Compendium DS. Um, 
I think what, what we've tried to produce for the course is something that's attractive. It's a design course after all, so we've tried to produce, produce something that seems attractive to use and most of all easy to use. First level students, um, a huge range of ages, um, so that the, the, the barrier to using the software has got to be pretty, pretty low. I think, uh, I think uh, we've achieved that. Um, there's a sort of seamless integration between the desktop and the web too, so you can pull in links. You can, it's very easy to sort of surf the web. If you're, if you're thinking about a problem, you know, a, a T-shirt problem, and you, you want to go, go and do a Google search, you come across a website, you can just pull that link into Compendium, and then that sits on the, in your Compendium map too. It's a very useful way of pulling together information in a central point. Um, and also files from your desktop, you can just drop them into the environment and, and link them together. And what we found, some students have, have begun to use this outside the course too. During the course, students tend to start using it in their work environments and for structuring, for structuring other kinds of things. So they've, they've, they've really taken, taken to it. It's suited for visual material. I think that's, that, that's key, that it has to, for, a for any design thinking process, it has to process visual material well it has to and, and sort of seamlessly it doesn't create large export files so when students export their files it's, it, they're, they're easy to send around you can send them to your tutor via the email you can um, submit them to ETM, ETMA system and that's, that's easy to do if, they were, if, if we were talking about huge files and download, you know, download times that all becomes an issue then so um, getting it efficient um, was a real achievement I think um, it does integrate with the UTMA system. That's quite a significant factor, especially for the Open University, because um, that is the central uh, system that integrates the sort of what the students do with what the, what the tutors are doing. It's been pretty stable and reliable. We haven't really had many problems. I think, most of all, it's sort of ideal for open-ended problems, and this is where I think it links with other aspects of science and technology. I think a lot of science and technology can be opened up by opening up problems uh, or, or, or giving a bit more freedom to students to, uh, to, 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 to explore an area without necessarily having to produce one particular answer. Um, and I think I, I, saw, I saw a presentation, an example of that uh, in engineering where you, you can teach uh, students statics and dynamics, you can you know, give them equations, you can give them setups and they can, they can solve problems. But if you give them a problem like a diving board you know, and you say, go and explore the engineering aspects of diving boards. You know, and that's an, a, a way of opening up a problem for a student, that they go away and they can get lots of information they can, about colours, about materials, about how people interact with diving boards, about stresses. And, and, but you haven't really defined what the problem is. They, they, there's a process of finding what the problem is in, in that. So it's, if you open up problems like that, I think uh, an environment like Compendium becomes very useful because then you can sort of see what students are looking at and how they're putting information together and how they're understanding things. So I think, I think the applications are far wider than just design. I think it's a case of rethinking how we put problems to students, especially in STEM subjects, um, and opening up those things to, make, to bring in the sort of creativity. Because after all, a lot of you know, scientific discoveries, when you, when you actually read about them, they're creative discoveries. They're moments of insight. They're moments where where things happen, things come together, and you know it's that process of the dust, the dust and rubbish suddenly comes together, and you get you get a you get a, a strong feeling that um, you found something. So I think there is a wide range of application areas. I don't, I'm not sure how many other courses have taken this up. Um, 
but I think it certainly deserves, deserves looking at if you're thinking of teaching in this way. So thank you very much for listening. Again, <coughs> excuse me, I tried to look at a compendium, you know, when I got the program online, oh, yeah. sent to yep. me, and uh, I couldn't use it, uh, and I guess it's because I'm not registered as a student with the OU. I got quite a technical reason, i.e. a link between my client and a server wasn't present. So Did, were you trying to use the adult version of Compendium or the Compendium? I just followed the link that was in the program. I went to it and then uh, okay. it gave me a facility to download it. So I thought, oh, it must be Creative Commons or something. I can use it. Uh, okay. And then I couldn't use it. But it struck me that it would be uh, have much wider variety of applications than it's just covered by today. And it was for that reason that I wanted to look at it. So yeah, I was just yeah. wondering, yeah. is there a facility for people who are not registered on a course, who are not associated with the OU directly? I, th I think so, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll check out the link. I mean, a lot of people do have that experience. They, they download the, the sort of adult version of Compendium and then sort of say, this is, this is complex. Cause, because that has to link to a server, so that's why that, uh, that, that might have come up. Um, whereas this, yeah, I think it's on OpenLearn somewhere, um, the Compendium DS version. But there are, there are other versions too, which, so you have, to get the, you have to be sure that you've got the right one. Okay. I may send you an email. And okay, yeah, yeah, that's thanks. fine, yeah. I was curious about the uh, the student and the tutor uh, views, which seem to be a little bit different. Is it a different version, and uh, would there be value to allowing other people to comment to questions? Um, it's, it's it's essentially the same version. We've we've given them a, a different node to comment on, so the tutor sort of has a has a. Um, an extra node so that they can make comments so it's clear to the students that the tutors have, have made comments. Um, that's, that's, uh, what, what we found is that the tutors tend to be comment too, a bit too much. So if you've got a complex process, say the, the process is, I, I don't know, 30 nodes, they tend to comment on all 30 nodes. And I think that's, that's a bit too much for students to sort of take in, a comment on every, everything that you've done. Um, so there's the kind of the practice has kind of evolved. The first presentation was very much students, uh, tutors would comment on pretty much ev everything. And it's evolved to actually just commenting on things that they think you know significant points, as you would in marking an essay, say, and um, and then writing a summary and putting that in as a as a word document. So you get you kind of get um, you, you get criticism at specific points points in the process, and then you get a kind of an over, overall feel of of where you're at kind of thing. Um, and having other people comment, uh, I, well, I, I think that's, did, our intention was that students would, in putting together a process, they would send around their sort of half-complete compendium maps for comments to other, you know, maybe other students, uh, maybe to their tutor. Um, and, and, I mean, that, that is very easy to do. To do. Basically, you just send a compendium map to something, someone else. They can import it. They can make comments on it and then export it back to you. So that level of discussion can, can go on um, and can be supported. But if you do that, you can't distinguish between what the original person said and what somebody else commented. They're um, just nodes. Yeah, you can, I mean, well, you can title, you can title your nodes so it's clear that, you know, it's a comment or something, yeah. 
and you can change the colors of, of the arrows or something like that to make it clear that you, you know, these are your comments. Okay, thank you. Tony Hurst from the Department of Communication and Systems here at the OU. Um, and I'm going to give a presentation about um, some of the ways in which I have visual conversations with, with data sets, um, some large, some small. Um, in the best tradition of starting off presentations with an overview of the presentation, this is an overview of the presentation. So you can see it's going to be quite a hectic journey, if nothing else. Um, Part of the context about today is, is the use of diagrams and um, visualizations, visual representations um, in course materials. So I'm going to start with an example of an activity that comes out of the TXR um, 175 and now relabeled as TXR 120 Residential School, which is a series of day-long activities, um, one of which is a robotics activity in which students construct a small robot laden with sensors, um, and over the course of the day they have to send, build an program a robot so that it goes on a mission to discover a lost teddy bear in an underground um, cavern network. It's a rescue robot scenario. And part of the, the um, assessment for the course requires students to interpret a graph that they've generated. And so this is, this is a version of the graph. Um, and what it does, it, it shows three sensor traces on it, which are collected over um, a series of sample steps. So the samples along the x-axis represent time, essentially. They're sampled points. Um, sensor three is a, a rotation sensor which goes forwards and then goes backwards. It's a count of number of sixteenths uh, of a turn of a rotation sensor. And then sensor one and sensor two on that diagram are two light sensors. And the light sensor level um, is related to the light levels being read by each sensor. One points to the left of the robot, one points to the right of the robot. And the teddy bear who's lost in this underground cavern network has got a little light beacon on it. And so when we get a, a, a blip in the sensor one level, it shows us that sensor one has seen this teddy. And the idea for students is to interpret this graph and, and work out where in the cavern network the lost teddy is so that they can then go and rescue it. Um, so the thing about that, that figure is that it's a chart that's designed to be read. Okay, and it's also, more than that, it tells a story. And the story it tells is the robot story, or at least part of the robot story. And so what we try to engage the students do is seeing these three data tracers over time and narrating a story. Um, so, the robot story. So we can read this. We can read it from left to right. We can see how the robot trundles forwards, and at a certain point it sees a sensor one on, on one side of it, then there's a blip on sensor two, and we've actually overloaded the sensors. We've put a touch sensor onto sensor two's input, which when the robot bumps into the end of this cavern network, it sends a peak up on sensor two. And then we go out again. So one thing we see from that diagram is that, that it's symmetrical. We've got a robot going in and coming out. Um, there's other ways we can use diagrams to tell stories, and this is a sort of a, a made-up graph, uh, which I used in 2151, so along the bottom, it tells the story of a three-act structure in a, in a play or a film or a book. So we've got a beginning, middle, and end section, and we've got tension on the y-axis, and tension grows over time, and there's, there's crises. You can draw similar sorts of diagrams for you know, your favourite romantic comedy. You can make up the axes, 
And, and if you want to draw that sort of graph, there's a nice tool online called Crappy Graphs, where you do just, you make up axes and you draw lines and, you know, you make the point. Right? It's a tool, it's a fun tool, but it's also a tool for making a point. And we've heard throughout today how diagrams are quite playful things um, that people are free to engage with, um, communicating things that they wouldn't necessarily say out loud or write down. But you might do a crappy graph. And because it's called a crappy graph, you've got a bit of an excuse. Okay? It being a crappy graph gives you an excuse to say these things. It's not serious. The point it makes might be deadly serious, but it's said in a playful tone, uh, it allows you to get away with it. Um, it gives you a humorous justification. If nothing else, you can say it was a joke. Um, another example of this sort of storytelling, particularly with stories, comes from Kurt Vonnegut. And uh, I commend this video to you, Kurt Vonnegut, on the shapes of stories. If you go to YouTube, you can do a search for Vonnegut story graph and come to this. It's about four minutes long. Um, and he, there, he draws out several classic children's fairy stories or fairy story types using made-up graphs. So, conversations with data or data conversations. One of the things we can do with this, with this graph, the robot story graph, is we can ask, ask various things of it. We can ask when the robot saw the teddy bear. We can ask where the robot saw the teddy bear by, by looking at the distance graph, sensor 3, the rotation sensor count graph, um, finding out how, how many rotations of the wheels there were before the first sensor was seen. If we know the size of the wheels and we assume the wheels aren't slipping, we can work out the distance from that sensor count. So we can start to have a conversation with this graph. But the graph doesn't tell us everything. Um, we can also have a conversation with the graph about what's not there. So we've got sense three giving us a rotation sensor count, but we don't know how big the wheels are. Okay, so this graph is inviting us to ask questions, ask questions about the data. It gives a view over part of the data that, that's associated with the robot, not all of it. Right? There's some sort of truth in there, but not the whole truth. So we're invited to have a conversation. We're invited to ask ask about what's not on that graph to help us make more of that graph. Now, um, one thing I want to say about graphics, and it has come up several times during today, is a distinction between what we might term presentation graphics and visual analysis. When people generate diagrams, um, a lot of the time they think that the production of the diagram is the pr production of the, created, of the finished work. So you're producing a chart, or an image so that it can be published and used to communicate something, communicate something you know. The way I tend to use visualizations uh, and imagery, graphics, is to have conversations with the data. So I'm having a visual conversation with the data. I'm asking questions. I'm representing the data in a visual way. I'm trying to understand what the visualization says. But that's not intended as a finished work. The images I use are steps along the process. They're not presentation graphics. Presentation graphics have got a very different feel about them. Presentation graphics communicate something that you already know. You've decided what story wants, is to be told. The presentation graphic helps you tell that story. In visual analysis, you're using the visualizations to find out what that story is. And you may throw away those visualizations. We heard in the designer's story, you produce doodles and sketches, and they may never make it to the finished work. Um, an artist or a developer working for... The New York Times, Amanda Cox, uses the notion of producing statistical graphs as sketches. Sketches to help her come to an understanding of data sets used to illustrate stories in the New York Times that are then thrown away. They help progress the story and develop the story, but they're not necessarily used in the final presentation of the story. Um, so just to, to 
sort of qualify those distinctions between presentation graphics and visual analytics. Uh, this nice book, short book um, from O'Reilly, practical book about developing data visualizations, makes the distinction between explanatory visualizations on the one hand, so the visualizations, the presentation graphics that are used to communicate or tell a story where you know what the story is, and the exploratory visualizations where you're engaging in a visual conversation with the data, trying to get it to tell you its stories. Um, so, I think one of the things that, that in this, this production of the stories, um, much as is being told with the stories that are being developed by LiveScribe today, they're, they're actually documenting a process. So the reading of those stories, they're being written following a linear sequence, and I think they're all being developed from top left at the start, and they're moving the way downwards diagonally across the page. But when we look at those things after the fact, there may be many ways through that story. So any of the visualizations, the LiveScribe visualizations, we might start off top left, but we might not read them in a linear way. We might not read them in the way they were created. Because there may be many, many paths through that, that after-the-fact record. And that can be confusing. It can be confusing looking at a sketch you've built up over time. It makes sense as you're drawing it. It makes sense as you're making marks on paper, constructing this story, building on things you've already done. Look at it after the fact, and it can be just a jumbled mess, jumbled noise. It doesn't necessarily have a simple retelling um, or a rereading. I think one, one thing that that's, um, illustrates something related to this, many of you, I guess, will be familiar with Hans Rosling, um, who uses a big... Um, visualization based around Gapminder software, now owned by Google, um, which is an animation he uses to demonstrate the evolution of statistics for um, development and aid. And if you look at the, his presentations on TED, um, uh, there was a, a BBC program last year, The Joy of Statistics, showing him um, illustrating his use of this presentation. It's a set of animated bubbles that move across time, with time, across a canvas, and he narrates the story. As this animation plays out, Hans Rosling points at dots. He brings your attention to certain features of the story that's being told. If you look at an animation, a gapminder visualization, without his narration and without his interaction with the diagram by pointing at it, by using pens and markers pointing at things, it can be just a jumbled mess. Like that, that telling, that animated telling of the story, when he compliments it, is, is the story is meaningful and obvious. If you just look at the, the animation on its own, it can be very difficult to see what's going on. What am I supposed to be looking at? Where should I be focusing my attention? What story is being told? Um, another example of um, structure emerging over time, this is a, a network I generated of, um, of my blog, postings to my blog. The dots are nodes, the dots are blog posts. I generated this yesterday. When I write my blog, I write a, a post a day or a post every two days. Over time, it's a linear sequence. If you look at the blog, it's a linear sequence of posts presented in reverse chronological order. But this is a structure that shows how the posts relate to each other. Each of the links on that diagram is one blog post referring to another. And the size of the dots is a measure of the importance of, of each page within that structure. So the, the blog, even though it's produced linearly, right, in a chronological order, you can read it chronologically, reverse chronologically, it sort of makes sense. There's actually a deeper structure in there, um, a deeper graphical structure. 
post-cluster together in themes. And we can see those, and we can retell those. We can take out those, those, those dots are coloured by clustered groupings. We can pull out those, and then we can retell the story either linearly, chronologically, or there are multiple paths through that. And course materials may have similar structures. There may be multiple paths through them. They may be authored linearly, but actually they've got a deeper structure. But it can be confusing knowing which structure to navigate, which pathway to take. Um, something else I've been, been playing with, just relating to structure and the way we, you evidence structure or find structure in diagrams. Uh, over the years, I've been interested in what I call the notion of writing diagrams. So rather than making marks on paper, connecting dots, drawing boxes, a lot of those representations actually illustrate a deeper mathematical structure or textual structure. So there, there are a couple of online tools, text to mind map and web sequence diagrams. I'm not sure if they're still around. These are quite old screenshots. Where you write the structure of the, of the, um, of the diagram. So you don't draw it. You don't make the marks on the page. You don't make, you don't make these marks. You don't draw these nodes and these lines. You don't draw this structure. Instead, you write, Alice links to Bob. So Alice links to Bob. Via an authentication request. Via an authentication request. You write it in the top box. The machine generates this. Right? This is just layout. That's the structure. The top is the structure. Um, the presentation illustrates that structure in a meaningful way. But still, the structure is embodied within the mapping from the textual description to the representation, to the visual representation of of the artifact. Um, a tool I, I use quite a lot um, called Graphviz <coughs> allows you to define quite complex graphs. So we saw today earlier the, the marking tool um, for marking diagrams. I'm not sure what sorts of rep representations are used underneath the uh, graphs that are drawn. But here we, we write, on the left we write, we define a graph and then Graphviz renders it. So we can define how points connect to points. We can put points in boxes. And then a layout engine generates the graph according to well-defined well rules. And in some editors, you might be able to change that layout. So you get the computer to do a first pass, and then you tweak things. Graphviz allows you to, to write or select from menus and then connect by dots. But it's using the underlying textual representation, a whole range of, of shape types. So you can, you can draw quite rich diagrams. And you can also develop quite rich structures. So all these, these structures, they weren't drawn. They were drawn by computer, but they were represented by text. Which means that if, if, you, if, you were, if you'd drawn this diagram and you wanted to um, add another label in there, or you wanted to reorganize the structure, it could be quite a chore, quite a pain. But if you write the diagram, you just change the code, and you let the machine do the layout. And that's particularly useful when you're drawing big, complex graphs. So that leads into the notion of visualizations being defined almost algorithmically from underlying representations, textual representations, where you represent the form in a textual way, and then you just let the machine visualize it. And that can work with data as well. So um, th there's various ways of doing that. Um, but one nice way of describing the underlying mappings from data sets particularly um, numerical data sets, data sets used in statistical computing, um, is, is a notion of the grammar of graphics by Lee Wilkinson. Um, and it's been implemented in various forms. GGplot2 
is a library in R, which builds on the notion of the grammar of graphics. And what the grammar of graphics does is it allows you to, to take visual, to take dimensions of a data set or elements of a data set and map them onto visual representations. And then these are, are, are rendered by the machine. So this is an example of one. This is a, a chart that I was developing for um, visualizing the results of Formula One races, the, the position of um, each of the drivers within a race. And it was looking at the range of positions they had um, been placed in during the course of the race, where they were on the grid to start with, their position at the end of the first lap, which is a meaningful point, and their position at the end of the race. And that graph, this graph is generated in R, the statistical programming language, using a, the ggpot library, and I wrote that diagram. I didn't draw that diagram, I wrote that diagram. I said, I want to do a ggplot of this data. I've actually got two data sets, a D1 data set and a D2 data set. The lines are generated from data in my D1 data set, and the points are generated from the D2 data set. I'm also writing in the text, the title, so I'm writing in the title element, and I'm defining as well how I want to present the, uh, the labeled axes. And I can also say what I want in the legends and give that table. So I wrote that diagram. That applied to two well-defined data sets, appropriately defined data sets, generates that image. Okay? And I can style it further. I can color the nodes. I can resize the nodes. And I can tell it how I want it to be colored or resized. I don't do that myself. I say I want to map this variable onto this visual dimension, this visual quantity. So that, that sort of, as well, complements um, the notion of visual variables and the sorts of things you can represent in visual terms that you can map onto uh, properties or elements of data sets. So Bertrand's visual variables um, categorize the different sorts of things you can do in the visual space. So you can use the shape of points, right, or the size of points, the color or hue, um, the color values, intensity, textures you can use. You can represent these to points or lines or areas. And they, each of these different dimensions, each of these different visual variables, is useful for encoding different sorts of mathematical structure or property. As well as those mappings, you also have space, um, location, where on a canvas, where you actually make the mark. Because there's a lot of information <coughs> can be communicated by how points relate to each other in space. Okay, so where you make the mark. I mentioned the, just the way the, um, the Livescribe drawings were being constructed today, starting top left. But you could also be doing that in a circle, I guess. I'm not sure. Do you ever do, you ever do different layers? Right. Okay. Right. I'm going to tell a linear story. Right. Are they designed to be read that way, though? They are quite cartoon like. Yeah. Right. So you're right. So there may be multiple ways of actually doing the capture as well as doing the retelling. Um, 
Okay, so, uh, there, there was a question to Andy Lane, I think, earlier about um, uh, colour representations across uh, international levels. And so there is sort of work in this, or quite a lot of work in this. Um, this is a recent blog post, recent-ish, uh, which was just making the point of, you know, the different range, different, different interpretations of the colour pink, essentially. That if you're a bloke, you only see a couple of pink-related colours. Um, and if you're a girl, then you see lots more. And this was, this was actually a graphic that was illustrating a, a recent paper which was um, relating to, I think, the various words for the colour blue. That, um, in, I think it was in Russian. There is a sort of quite a finely developed blue palette in terms of words for blue, different shades of blue. Um, so that there is work in, you know, in colour interpretation and colour preferences across the world. Different regions have different... Um, colour preferences, and you can use colour um, in sort of transparent or non-transparent, quite divisive ways. There was a recent graphic which was, um, I think, around something to do with US elections, and a point was made that the red colour used um, to represent um, Republican, Democrat, whichever one is used, the red tone in this image started off quite a deep red and got darker, and that the person who, who was writing the commentary just made the point that the only thing he could think of that was similar to that was drying blood. And so there was, you know, there was this sort of subtext almost of the colour had been used and was um, unconsciously, you could be unconsciously influenced by this representation. So these things, so one of the things I'm keen on doing is uh, finding ways of exploiting structure through visual means within data sets. And, and data can, can often embody large amounts of structure. Uh, but you don't always realise this. You're not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily obvious to you what sort of structures are embodied by particular data sets. So this is an example of Olympic medal data table from 2008. Um, the first column relates to countries, the countries that medals were awarded to. Then we've got the discipline, the event, the medal that was awarded, and, and in that case, the name of the person. Now, that data set actually is, can be viewed with a hierarchical structure, as if it has hierarchical structure in it. And using a tool called Many Eyes, um, which is an online visualization tool IBM produced, and a visualization tape called TreeMap, I've done two different visualizations here that represent the same data set um, on two different views. So the top left one, the, the highest level block, is based around discipline. And then with this, so we've got swimming is the top left green one, and then below that there's athletics, the red one. Shooting is the next yellow one to the, to the right. And the blocks that are marked out within those big coloured blocks are country blocks. So you can see um, the countries, that the, the number of medals awarded per country. So the size of each block represents the number of medals, the medal count. Um, and the area of each of the smallest level blocks within there is, is a, a unit measure of area. So the top left one has got a representation of the data with discipline at the top level, and then you go from discipline down to country, down to the medal type, down to the event. So that's a hierarchical structure then. We've organized this in a hierarchical way. The, the second image there um, goes country, medal. So we have, there's Australia, that one's China, this one's America. So this is the medals awarded to the US, and there's actually structure within there as well. We've got Gold, silver, and bronze. I think that's the order on it. And then you go into the, the, the actual disciplines. So that view, it's the same data. Same, I only uploaded the data once. I cut and pasted it. Cut and pasted it into many eyes. Uploaded it as a data set. Said I want to use a tree map. 
and then I can order what I can order how my hierarchy is extracted from that data table just by reordering the labels that appear along the top. So they appear up here. Um, so I can, I can have a story with that data. I can get it to reveal the different hierarchies within it. And I can get different views out of that data set. And I'm running out of time. Very out of time. Okay. So one of the, the notions relating to this is the notion of macroscapes. Being able to get a visual view over a huge amount of data that you wouldn't be able to make sense of necessarily immediately if you're just looking at pages and pages and pages and pages of numbers. Geography often helps you provide macroscopic views. This is a view over the markers of MPs, constituencies. Um, the colours are the amount of money spent on particular travel expenses. And the reason I generated this visualisation was to, to try and find odd things. So the colour goes, purple is not a lot of money and red is loads of money um, on expenses. You get little red people in odd places, out of kilter with their neighbours. Right. Why, are they, why are they claiming more than their neighbours? Why are they claiming less? Making use of the representation, the geographical structure in that data. And that helps you have... You can see those points, you can see the outliers, and then you can have a conversation with the data in a deeper sense. This says there may be something odd. Okay, that's all it says. There may be something odd. You can then dig into the data a little bit more and actually try to find out whether there is meaningful uh, difference in there. Uh, another chart type I, I quite like, um, seasonal subseries for time series data. So this is data over a long period of time, sort of thing you typically might see. Um, if it's over several years, quite often you might top chart up there, you might pull out the data according to a particular um, year or days of week within a month. Well, this chart pulls out each of these is a month within a year. So we can see the progression within each month across years. I think that's the one. So visual ways can pull out different bits of story. Um, we can also use animations. So this was a, if we work, a visualization of checkouts using um, a, a disk bibliography server. And what this does was just visualizations um, resolving lookups of particular um, bibliographic data items. And one of the things you can see in here, there's, there's two sorts of things. There's the sorts of resources in red that are being accessed, and there's the referrer, which is in green. And one of the things this shows is that Mendeley, which is an online bibliographic service, shared bibliographic service, is, make, is generating a lot of traffic to quite a lot of journals. Mendeley is in green, and it's, it's sort of always there. It's like a beacon saying, I'm sending you traffic. I'm sending you traffic. Mendeley is generating traffic to this bibliography server. Um, right, so differences. This was a visualization of voting record um, over last parliament, previous parliament. Top level was um, Labour, who were then the majority. Middle stripe is Lib Dems, um, then the Conservatives and others. Green was um, voting with the um, voting in favour, votes aye, and red with votes no. And that said, that gives the whole voting record. And you see some black lines going across, these are absences. Each row across is an MP's voting record. And you see the stripes going down, so the parties tend to vote in favour with each other. And if you look at the, the deeper structure, you can see odd places here. So we've got Liberals and Labour voting together, against. But you can also see occasions where the Liberals may have voted with the government. 
So you can start to see, start to see structure. You have to look in quite deeply, but you start to see how things go. And that gives you a view over you know, hundreds, thousands of records. This one was um, of, um, again, motorsport data. This was data from uh, McLaren um, Formula One cars, visualizing each horizontal row is a lap, um, and we've got distance, we've got time, essentially, along the x-axis. And so this was just trying to represent the, the brake, brake pressure data, the speed data, um, the gear that the cars were in over the course of the race. And you, you, first thing to notice of that is that the cars are really consistent. You can also compare the drivers against each other to see where they are different. So this was, was comparing the two drivers. And there is one element of that graph um, somewhere in the middle. There's a couple of stripes up, up there where the traces differ. The, buff the drivers are behaving differently. So having seen that, looked at that, we can then map onto a geographical spatial layout to look where actually the drivers were differing and those layouts are offset. But with these visual representations, we might go from one form to another form. But we might use different visualizations over the same data to try and express different things, different properties. We might learn something from one visualization that might not be seen in another one. So each visualization is like a different lens, right? but it's a different lens that shows different features or properties. And choosing those lenses wisely can help you engage in that conversation with the data. You might use one lens, makes you notice something odd, unusual, different, and then you then use another lens to check that, right, just to refine your insight. Or maybe bring in additional data. We can get emergent views over data sets. This is the hierarchical view of an OU course, TU100, grabbed by scraping the headings data, um, hierarchical headings data out of uh, OU XML documents, um, and generating a, a tree map for use in FreeMind, which is a visualization tool. Um, so this tree map, the structure of it, was generated as text. This is one of those writing diagrams. I generated it from, as text from OUXML, cast it into a form that could then be visualized by the FreeMind tool. And this tool, once you throw that data structure into it, you can add your own annotations. So that's scaffolding for, for your own notes around the course. Um, this is a, a network visualization over OU courses and how they're related. Uh, on data.openacuk, the OU's open data store, there's a, a list of OU courses and how they're related to each other. I grabbed that data down, visualized it as a graph within a tool called Gethy, and laid it out so that points that are courses that are related to other courses are, are close together. And you see that all the biology courses, biology courses tend to structure, tend to clump. They're all clumped up top left, we've got volcanoes and exploring science and earth sciences around here. There's a bunch of um, environment courses in the middle on this one. Um, maths, you and your money. So um, entry sort of maths courses there. And that structure develops from the layout. Right? The, the layout tool I used made, exposed the structure and how those courses were related to each other. This is generated from Google+. This was looking at all the people who followed um, Red Bull Racing, who they also follow, and then mapping it as a graph. And from that, you see a bunch of drivers at the top, you see a bunch of performance cars in the middle, um, and then you see other cars down the bottom, laid out again according to the network structure. 
So you get a view over, over the space that emerges from the structural relations between these entities. This one was mapping from Twitter, uh, mapping accounts that are related um, to each other in hearing deafness. So this was done for someone at just TechDes who was interested in finding out who was active in various accessibility areas on Twitter, how the accounts connect to each other. And this was a bigger map of um, uh, the people followed by the followers of action on hearing, I think. And again, it's laid out. You see a bunch of charities. There's a whole bunch of charities over here. There's, um, there, there's two different sorts of deaf-type accounts. There's um, so signed video. So there's a lot of, um, I think these are sort of activist accounts around deafness. And then at the top, there's a few more relating to business, business matters um, around deafness. And finally, uh, another thing just from Twitter, looking at differences. I looked at the people who were talking around BBC Question Time and BBC Newsnight on the same day, looking to see the differences in profiles of who the audience has followed. And you see the BBC Question Time at the top. Um, people followed it. Stephen Fry is always followed, usually. Um, Bill Bailey, Bossy, um, Mark Thomas. And then the bottom ones, the people following, followed by Newsnight, um, by Newsnight, people mentioning Newsnight who weren't following BBC Question Time are more political-based. So that, that shows you BBC Question Time's got more of a populist following. But that's drawing out differences, drawing out differences. And we can map those differences on different axes. So here I've got a um, number of mentions from BBC Question Time audience people and number of, on the x-axis and Newsnight audience members on the left. And those are accounts followed by, by those different audience types. And we see the distance away... There's a line. There's an XY line. So the normalized distance away from that line tells you is meaningful. It tells you how far away from the other audience they are, essentially. And that's a different view of similar data. So that's me done. Um, and the question is, I guess, have you had a visual conversation with any of your data lately? Um, and I write about these things um, on my blog, Useful Info. So thank you. no time for questions, so I'll take some questions. Uh, one or two Sorry. questions? Yes, uh, very intriguing talk, thank you. Um, I was wondering what were the most difficult data sets you had conversations with? Um, oh, oh, so difficulty largely comes from the fact that the data's a mess. So it's just noisy and data tip, whenever you, so I play with public, open public data sets and quite often it, it needs cleaning, so um, there, are, there are rogue character sets, there are rogue character encodings, the data's not normalised if um, numbers aren't represented as numbers, they've got commas or punctuation in. So, you, so the, the problems, the main problem usually is just getting the data into a state, first of all, where you can, where numbers are numbers. Um, so it's cleaning the data. And then um, in terms of difficult ones, um, I think anything with a structure I haven't seen before. Um, so you start to recognize from just throwing data at tools the sorts of structures or properties that may well be inherent within it. And then me personally, I use tools that try to exploit those and expose those structures, first of all. So if it looks like it's graphical, then a graph. I try and throw everything into a graph um, because the tools for visualizing graphs are um, 
uh, quite powerful. Uh, it's a very expressive way of representing data, looking for hierarchies. You can see hierarchies within graphical layouts anyway. Then you might know I want to use a hierarchical rendering tree map or something. Um, Got time for one more question? One more. Please. Uh, this is what is your favorite tool when you do these data analysis, when you mine the data? Um, well, I, for, for, for visualizing graphs, I use Gephi, G-E-P-H-I, which is a cross-platform open source tool, uh, Java-based. Um, for, for getting data, there's often two or three steps. So Gephi works on graphical representations. If I, want to get, if I want to manipulate data sets and put them into graphical forms that can be visualized, I use NetworkX, which is a Python library. Um, but there's also iGraph, which is quite a widely used library. Um, I've also started spending more and more time looking at R, and in particular ggplot2 in R, so our statistical graph uh, programming environment. I use the R Studio environment for that, which again is a cross-platform um, tool. Um, so, yeah, and that, that I find that's voodoo magic, really. I spend a lot of time asking for help on that one. Uh, so Stack Overflow is where I go for help, generally. Thanks very much again, Terry. Thank, thank you. you. I've, got, I've just asked some, some of our friends from, who've been listening all day to come and join me up here, uh, not for me to blather away, but for them to blather away for a while. I wanted to get some other perspectives on what we've done today. Kevin, I think I winked at you. You can't sit down there. I winked at you. Come on, you're up here. It's amazing what people will do to avoid popularity. Come on. Um, <laughs> Kevin, come on. No, really, seriously, seriously, seriously. There you go. There is a chair. There's a chair. Oh, yes. We're better planned than that. We're much better planned. Share my microphone. What I'd like to do is just get get, get these these folks to uh, introduce themselves first of all. So we'll just do the introductions first of all. Then I'm going to ask them to give some feedback on how they've experienced today. I'm saying this out loud now, so they've got an idea what I'm going to ask them, so they can prepare. And then I'd ask you also to give your feedback, and hopefully we'll have a little bit of a conversation for half an hour or so about your feelings about today, and that's possibly also where we're going with it, if we're going anywhere with it. So starting uh, on my left here, could you introduce yourself, please? Uh, good afternoon. My name is uh, Jackie Lee. I'm from the University of Surrey, the Centre for Environmental Strategy. Um, the main reason I, I came here today is I spent the last 15 years in the field of sustainable development, teaching engineers about the environment, the three pillars of sustainable development, um, environmental systems analysis. Um, and one of the problems we've had is trying to take this human construct of sustainable development and take it and turn it to something that engineers who like things that are measurable, hard and very sort of rigorous and get them to understand and take this concept on board and be able to use it. Mm. Now, the problem that I've come across is that what fits for one industry doesn't fit for another and a lot of the time I spend talking to a wide range of industries with very different product structures, very different product bases, mobile phones through to aeroplanes which have vastly different requirements on how you would apply this human construct of sustainable development so there is no one right answer and you can give them very general information but I wanted to find a way of getting across this idea that could then be more applicable in many more types of situations. Thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Clive Bright. 
Um, I work for an organisation called Lloyd's Register, um, so I'm not an academic um, and not a student here at the OU. Um, within that organisation, Lloyd, Lloyd's Register is primarily an independent uh, inspection and survey organisation across a range of engineering um, systems, if you like, historically shipping, hence its link within the name Lloyd's, where we have a series of surveyors, engineers, surveyors, either looking at designs of vessels, uh, so a very graphical um, construct there, um, or the actual operation of vessels. Um, so it's a global organisation, lots of little offices and a, a few hubs, a few large offices, um, historically marine-based, but also now has grown over the last 100 years into other industries, including energy, onshore, offshore energy, and that's where I sit within the organisation. Uh, within that, I have a role looking at knowledge management, so how do we develop the competency um, skills of our staff, how do we uh, increase um, the knowledge-sharing culture, if you like, within that organisation. Um, and that in itself, knowledge management, as I'm sure a number of you from academic areas and, and your own experiences will know is quite a nebulous term um, and a lot of businesses are struggling, wrestling with what does knowledge management mean for the business. It's a great idea in principle. It sounds intuitively something we should be doing, but in itself is actually quite a messy problem. Hence, my interest over the last couple of years has been looking at using sort of systems thinking approaches, uh, stakeholder engagement, the soft systems in included, uh, to try and wrestle with that problem and better define what knowledge management means for the organisation. Uh, so that's kind of a lead into why I'm here today. I was interested, uh, I came across quite um, opportunistically the, the event going on today. Um, obviously the, the link into rich pictures um, and the link then into systems thinking approaches. So hence, that's why I'm here today. So I work within a very uh, heavily engineering organisation, although I'm not an engineer myself. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, my name is Rosalind Armson. Um, I've been part of the Open University Systems Group for several centuries uh, and finally last year moved on to do something else. But I've spent the last 20 or more years teaching people to use diagrams uh, to solve real world problems, comple complex and puzzling problems. Um, we heard the terminology uh, wicked problems earlier on but messy problems is another way of describing them. And I've been fascinated through all of that um, by the way that there's a big difference between teaching people to draw diagrams and teaching people to think differently by using diagrams. So there's something about diagrams that goes way beyond the, um, the visual analysis, way beyond the finished product that you use to present information. And something about how... Um, Diagramming can become an, a kind of internalised process through which people will learn to see the world differently. Learn to think in a way that reveals more opportunities for taking purposeful action uh, in real-world situations. So that there's something about diagramming um, that comes about through the experience of diagramming. Uh, which is different from what happens when you teach people about diagramming. So there's something about the engagement with a, a real issue that matters to the person drawing the diagram that enables them to reach something, some other place in their thinking, which is different to if you just tell them how to draw a systems map or show them how to draw a rich picture or whatever. So I've been playing around with those ideas for 20 years and... Um, I, 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 the, the really exciting thing about using diagrams, particularly in the context of systems thinking, is that although I do masses of workshops for people 
Uh, I work with a very broad range of clients, very broad range of students, uh, other participants. Every time I feel that I've got more value for money out of the, the workshop than perhaps they have because it's, uh, it's something where one continues to learn. I think the process of diagramming somehow for me is a process of continuous revelation, continuous um, learning in a very exciting kind of way. Um, I think I'll go off rambling if I pursue that any further, but there's something quite special going on about what the dialogue between, um, uh, use the, com uh, the metaphor just now, uh, conversations with the, the, the diagram and the data. The conversation between my hand, my eyes, my brain, and the page is an incredibly fertile ground for learning. Hmm. Thank you. Hi, I'm, I'm Rob Pooley. I'm from Harriet Watt University. Um, this is going to become a bit like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, if I'm not careful. I've been with diagrams since. Uh, it's actually uh, remarkable. This is a terrifying fact I realized when I was thinking about what I was going to say. It's actually 50 years ago that I think I was first corrupted by a geography teacher who introduced me to the Ordnance Survey Map. And if you ever want to understand about diagramming and the power of visualization, I think the OS map is a wonderful example. It tells you so much, so concisely, and is so flexible. And ever since then, the last 50 years, I've been, you know, say, hopelessly in love with diagrams of all sorts and all shapes and sizes. The reason I'm here today is, um, along with Jenny at the back there and a couple of other colleagues, I introduced an information systems degree into our university about four years ago. Yeah. And... Um, as part of that, I met Tess, who has been entertaining you all today, um, and I tried to persuade her to do a PhD on the relationships in ontologies and rich pictures, which are usually regarded as completely you know, orthogonal. Uh, she wisely accepted to do the PhD and then chose to do it on something else. So uh, <laughs> you heard about what she's doing today. But I thought I'd better come along and, and keep, keep an eye on her so she doesn't do anything uh, too outrageous. Um, it's been a wonderful day. Do you want me to talk about today now, or should we come back around? We'll come, we'll come to that. Okay, so that, that's basically who I am and why I'm sitting here today. Thank you. Kevin. Hello. Um, um, my name is Kevin Collins. I'm a lecturer here at the Systems Department at the University. Um, I've used diagrams in all sorts of um, environmental situations, particularly looking at sort of complex natural resource management situations. Uh, with a whole range of stakeholders and organizations. So I use diagrams a lot for sort of social learning processes within organizations um, looking at natural resource management issues. Thank you very much. Uh, I gave them some warning, so it's quite fair now, isn't it? So what I'd like each of uh, these panelists to do really is just give us uh, two or three minutes on their feedback on how the outstanding moments of today or the things that have struck them or the things they've been appalled by or the things they've really enjoyed but just two or three minutes each one of them just to give some feedback and I'll be very interested afterwards to hear how much that resonates with you so again starting with you I just love being first in the <laughs> I have to say I was, I've been thoroughly impressed by all of the presentations today they've all covered very different aspects um, of, of diagramming um, for me personally the presentations this morning resonated more closely um, with what I was interested in, um, particularly the idea of these rich pictures, because I can see a way that um, you can use rich pictures to facilitate the learning process, 
but they don't necessarily become the final product when you're trying to teach people about sustainable development. Um, and in this way, it's very, very similar to trying to teach people a technique called life cycle analysis, whereby it's actually the process that you get the information and the use from rather than the actual final product. Although there will be people out there I know who will disagree with me on that, but I'm not going to get into that argument now. The, the feedback, the presentations um, with regard to the tools, I thought were, were interesting in that there are tools out there to actually help with how you look at diagrams and how you can assess processes and how you can automate some of these things because certainly with the education, the way it's moving to more remote, it's, it's difficult to try and get this information in and assessed in, a, in an equal manner because everybody who looks at a diagram will have a different value on it. So that I like the idea that you could have a, an automated marking system for diagrams. Uh, but I also recognise it does need development um, because at the moment it is still only looking at sort of a, a fairly, I would say, small section of types of diagrams that exist out there, and it does need to be expanded. The last speaker with regard to you know looking at getting a story and talking to your data, absolutely fascinating. Huge amounts of data in the environmental systems analysis. Lots of it goes completely unread, completely missed, and just just seeing what you can actually do with data if you know where to look and how to analyse it. Again, I had no idea half these tools existed, and I shall go away now and spend a lot of time on the web, no doubt, trying to find out what they all are and what they can all do. But it, it gives me a door now into taking, particularly for things like life cycle analysis, where you can have, well, let me give you an example. For an aero engine, there are over 5,000 components. If you do a life cycle analysis of an aero engine, it's going to be somewhere in the region of 400 to 500,000 pieces of data which you're going to want to be able to track and trace in some form. Now, there's no way you can do that without some of these data techniques that I've heard about today and actually being able to work out trends and see these type of things that you can do in structural analysis. Absolutely fascinating stuff. So for me, those things were the highlights of today. Thank you. Quick, quick point. I've been advised that there's some buzzing going on that suggests that somebody's got an illicit mobile phone. So we'll all close our eyes and... Uh, and as an act of penance, you can now tell us what you thought so, about today. It was going to be two to three minutes, it better be a half an hour now. Picking up on some of the um, points on my left here, um, and, and hopefully going beyond that, but yeah, I came, as I said in my introduction, really interested in the sort of systems thinking uh, issues that were on the agenda, the, the rich pictures, and that most certainly was some interesting presentations this morning on that, um, some thought-provoking um, issues there. I think overall, and I think maybe this has already been said to an extent, um, I kind of, the, the day was, there were lots of different issues re relating to diagramming, obviously underlying that diagramming have, has lots of purposes, purposes. Um, and, that, and it kind, I kind of find myself having to keep sort of asking myself and resolving what is, what's the purpose in my, in my area, what would be the useful application of those, those different uses. So there's the rich pictures, which is obviously where I came from initially, um, and then the, more, the teaching aspects, which isn't directly what I'm related to. Obviously, training comes into the, the area of knowledge management. But straying into the more sort of the formal diagramming techniques, the, the data modelling, the, the entity relationship um, diagrams, which in the past I have interest in from the, from the IT side of things, but didn't directly sort of um, relate in my mind to the, the earlier sort of the, the use of rich pictures as a way of uh, building consensus of uh, listing assumptions. So it's a very different style, a very different purpose. Um, but all really interesting presentations, um, as has been said. 
Um, really like the, the presentation um, sort of mid-afternoon on the use of, um, sort of graphics for developing the, the yeah, training packages. thought that was a really, really clever um, and useful uh, insight, which kind of cut across a number of those different uses of diagramming, I thought, and I thought that was really, really excellent. Um, and the statistics at the end, obviously, in all our areas of work, that's an incredibly powerful um, medium, um, quite complex, um, but, uh, yeah, overall, very, very useful. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, lots of thoughts. And, and I'm intrigued that I have so many notes to, of things to t take away and look up. Um, I don't usually come away with quite such a, a rich list of things to uh, pursue and follow up. Um, but I was interested this morning by the question about diagramming across cultures. Um, that's something I have some experience of, but not a huge amount, not like Simon and Stephen, for example. But, um, so, th there, there, yes, there are interesting issues around diagramming across cultures, in my experience. There are some senses in which diagrams uh, transcend uh, cultures. It, it can bypass some of the language issues. Even if it's a, a language-based diagram, it can... Um, by abbreviating the language and simplifying it, it can help. Metaphors, interestingly, a lot of, di a lot of diagrams get um, metaphors embedded in them, either explicitly, uh, but very, very often implicitly. And those can, can be quite tricky to manage across cultures. Um, and the issue around co-contribution, I think, is also an interesting one. Um, I've seen where um, diagramming has allowed people who are relatively less educated than perhaps some other people in a workshop find their voice and get legitimized through the drawing of diagrams. And, and that's been quite powerful when there are power issues in play. Um, we heard about um, some of the, um, what did you call it, the licensed... Um, you're allowed to say naughty things in diagrams. This sounds like a much better way of putting it. <laughs> yes. You are licensed to say naughty things in diagrams. When uh, I spent a, a large part of the last 10 years working um, with an organization which is close to many of our hearts, and um, <clears throat> we used to, uh, I used to notice in rich pictures that there would be often a present person present who, um, for want of a better term, was sometimes called Buffon Brenda, um, you, you, know, you have to be a little bit careful about sometimes about where rich pictures get displayed. Um, that would be an in-joke. You'll, you'll know who I mean if you know who I mean. Um, but also in rich pictures, I'm also struck by somehow, sometimes how, just how painful they are. We, we, uh, somebody talked, again, you, Simon, I think, talked about the, the, the good, the bad rich picture being the good rich picture. Mm. And... One of the things that um, I noticed a lot, uh, or I have noticed a lot in a lot of organizations, is where, I mean, one that springs to mind is where a, um, one senior executive had the, the drawer of the picture up against a wall and was flogging them. And this person couldn't move forward because of the brick wall, which was being held up on the other side by another of the, of the executives. And the pain that was embodied in that rich picture was staggering. And I think it, give, it, you know, 
as one reflects on that in the context of a day like today, then um, there is a sense in which a story like that is not part of our rational, technical way of dealing with the world or managing organisations or whatever it is we're trying to do. But when that is going on, and that is how people experience work, then you, know, you have to take those kind of things into account. You can't pretend that doesn't happen. You have to transcend the logical, rational, technical way of looking at the world. Um, I was also struck by the, today by the way that people... Am I going on too long? That's right, go on. Um, I was also struck by the, um, the way people talked about meaning, meaningful was a word that came out a lot. And meaningful, it seems, is an interesting... To me, is a very interesting word because at one level we all know what it means. But it seems to me that meaning in a diagram or elsewhere is something that emerges between... The, the person who has the, who the person reading the diagram and the diagram a diagram uh, meaningfulness I think is not a property that is inherent to a diagram it it's in, it emerges into the space between the diagram and the reader whether that reader is the originator because they're doing visual analysis but I think meaning is is an epistemological issue and opens up all kinds of epistemological issues which we haven't really tackled today that inhere around diagrams and and along that theme too diagrams what what it, where is the stuff that's not in the diagram it's another question that I'd like to um, hold here in this space group dynamics was another one um, it seems to me that drawing diagrams um, with groups who are trying to wrestle with tricky issues is one where um, the quality of the diagram or the usefulness of the diagram is uh, an emergent property of, of me or the facilitator of the workshop. The diagram style itself, the group dynamics, the group and the task that they're engaged in. And if you don't, if you're not able as a facilitator to manage those group dynamics very carefully, then there is a real flattening out of differences and tensions and perspectives. And you do get kind of a consensus rich picture or a consensus diagram of, of whatever kind. And a consensus diagram is often one which is a kind of lowest, lowest common denominator one. It represents only the things that people can agree on. And it's the, it's the tensions and the differences in perspective that can get lost if that goes wrong. And it's something I'm constantly aware of because I feel I'm not terribly good at it. Um, I've mostly got away with it, I think, but I don't feel I'm terribly good at it. And so there is an issue for me around whether one chooses to get people to draw collective diagrams or individual ones which they then talk about. I'll shut up now. No, thank you very much. This is very interesting also, just on that, because Steve and I... One of our observations is some of the best groups we work with are the ones who've got the highest level of conflict. Rob. Right, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, overall today has been really, really interesting. Uh, it was worth getting up at 5 o'clock this morning to fly down. So. <laughs> um, and uh, amongst other things, it gave me some new terms for things, and it crystallized a few um, sort of thoughts for me, which is good. Um, 
Just a little bit of background. I wrote two textbooks on UML, which is a highly structured diagramming language, and then got out of that and moved into Rich Pictures and uh, SSM so that I could uh, rehabilitate myself from, from that. So I, I saw things in, in different places that were resonated with both of those sort of existences. Um, uses of diagrams are interesting. I, I ended up with four categories out of what was said today. Using them for teaching, uh, for structuring, for visualization, for shaping, um, things like brain, sharing, rather, sharing, brainstorming, co-creation, and uh, various other you know, versions of that. Learning, um, using them for a kind of visual questionnaire, um, using them for visualizing things so that you can learn from that. These are all in, you know, the things that come out of it. And the fourth one, which I really hadn't thought about until I saw Vicky's talk, was using them for yourself, which is something I do. I often sit down and, and doodle some kind of you know, flow chart or something like that just to start myself thinking or whatever is an appropriate uh, you know, kind of diagramming technique for that. And I've got some, I even drew some, some pictures in my, uh, my note-taking today. So those, that gave me four different categories of use for diagrams, which I hadn't got that clearly defined before. The other thing, picking up on something that Roslyn said, um, I came up with the, the idea that their use of diagrams can be sort of outside-in, as I've called it, um, so the form of the diagram um, allows expression of exact meaning. So this is my UML background coming out here, and there were some you know, diagrams where it almost becomes more important to get the form of the diagram right, to get those crow's feet looking right on the ER diagram or whatever, rather than actually thinking about what you're doing with the diagram. And an awful lot of what I've seen, not today by any means, but in the past, has been people teaching if you like, the, the grammar of a particular notation rather than the understanding of what that's trying to communicate. And I think that's a, a real danger we need to be careful about. On the other hand, that does lend itself to automation and to um, mechanization. So you can compare two graph structures and say, are they identical? Do they share a significant amount of overlap and so on? Which can be very powerful. And the automatic marking system is an example of that kind of use of them, which without some kind of formalization, you can't actually managed. So there's a, there's a pressure there to do that. On the other side, inside out as I've called it, you want freeform diagrams which allow expression and you need to be able to express yourself in the most you know, creative ways you can. And if you look at the back wall there, you'll see you know, our efforts of that this morning, which are quite remarkable in, in some of them. And uh, you know, it shows how that can work. Um, so there's, there's an interesting contradiction or a tension here all the time between learning to express things and uh, learning rules as to how you should express things. And um, if you go too far in one direction, you're going to get into problems. If you go too far the other way, you get a different set of problems. Is it possible you know, to combine those two in some synthetic way that allows you to actually get the, the strengths of both of those forms of expression? And you know, I think that's something that we should maybe be doing a lot more work on to, to find out. Um, and the last thing is that whatever we think about diagrams, I think they are a wonderful basis for discussion and for working together. And that's the biggest thing that's come out just about everything that's been said today. I think you know, all the speakers have pretty much come down on that idea. Um, and the only thing you need to be very careful about is that you, you don't, make, don't leap to causality because things look similar or look as if they represent something. You really do have to understand a deeper meaning in those things because if you make mistakes in causality, then you can make disastrous mistakes in, in the next step in whatever it is you're trying to do. So I think, there's, again, that's something that came out in one or two of the talks today, which I thought was uh, 
reminded me of something fundamental that I perhaps don't always remember to express. So lots and lots of interesting stuff there for me today. Thanks, Rob. Um, I mean, the, the panel has said uh, many of my own thoughts. So I'll be brief and sort of focus perhaps on two things. Um, one is a sense that whenever you begin to draw, you, you're drawing a boundary. And there is this decision to be made by yourself or others, um, both when drawing it and in reading it, interpreting it, what is in and what is out. So what do you include in your diagramming is always a question for me. And obviously seeing some of the um, kind of online drawing as, as it was happening, I was interested to see what the, the animators left out as much as what they put in um, whilst I was listening to the verbal talk. So for me, there's always this question of what, do, what does a diagram include? Um, what should it include? What does it need to leave out? The other thing is, um, and I'm going to be slightly controversial here, because I think it's important to be controversial occasionally. Um, should we have all sat down and done those ridge pictures? Were any of us given permission not to do them and walk away? Or to do something else? Because um, I, I sat down and I took that piece of paper, and you'll see I ripped off the top of the piece of paper where we were, we were talking about teenagers and technology. And the reason I ripped off that top of that paper was because I felt very constrained by the images that were presented to me. I felt very constrained by the words that were presented to me. What I actually wanted was just that title and nothing else. So for me, that was a personal reaction to that process. That's not to say the process was wrong, but for me, I didn't feel I had permission to do things I wanted to do. So there's always a question of how the process is framing your thinking. And I think that's just as important in the diagramming as it is in writing. So I'm just going to leave it there and see if that opens up any issues for you. Thanks, thanks very much. That's, that's great. Um, comments. Uh, invite comments, questions, responses to anything that's been said, or just things that you want to say. <laughs>